every time you lose a person, you have to retrain them, there's a ramp up, and then if you're losing multiple people, high percentages of people, that is just an exorbitant cost. Yeah. And uh, so we determined that we would, we would more than save what it costs to put in higher wages and wage progression. And we've increased our retention by almost uh, 65 to 70% over the last year and a half. Wow. This episode is brought to you by the good people over at Kane Logistics, which is now part of ID Logistics. You know, I've been working with their team around this very podcast, and I've been blown away by their professionalism, creativity, and leadership insights. If you're not familiar with them, they've been a U.S. leader in warehousing, co-packing, and transportation for over 90 years. They also cover the globe with over 360 locations across 18 countries, totaling more than 80 million square feet of operated distribution space with more than 28,000 employees. ID Logistics is your trusted partner for warehousing and packaging, for food and beverage, consumer packaged goods, retail, e-commerce, and fulfillment across the U.S. and globe. For more information, head over to Kane Logistics, that's K-A-N-E logistics.com or idlogistics.com, id-logistics.com. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Hey, everyone out there. Welcome back to Lead the Team. I have Jim Arnold for you today, who's the Chief Financial Officer at ID Logistics US, a division of ID Logistics Group headquartered over in France. He has over 30 years of operational financial leadership with expertise in private startup, venture-backed, private equity-owned, and public companies, including many companies that you know, like NCR, AT&T, Cable and Wireless, AmeriCorps Logistics, CMA, CGM America, and GXO Logistics. Jim also has his own consulting company, that's right, called Red Sky Advisors, serving the logistics, finance, trade show, and utility industries. And we'll touch on that too. He was recognized, y'all, as the Virginia CFO of the year for large private companies. He also serves on the board of directors for Metro Group Maritime. Now, Jim has a strong educational background with a dual major, Bachelor of Science in Finance and Accounting from the Farmer School of Business and at Miami University. That's Miami, Ohio University. And an MS, he's giving me the thumbs up, y'all. And a MS focused in finance from the Johns Hopkins University Cary School or Cary Business School. Jim and his wife, Robin, live over in North Carolina, which is just up the road from me here in South Carolina. I have five children, two daughters, and three sons. Now, Jim, welcome to Lead the Team. Thank you, Ben. I'm so excited to participate. And uh, I, I really love your podcast. So it's, it's just, Exciting to be here. Oh, great. Glad to have you on. So let's let's get started with a real business topic around horse flipping. What in the world is horse flipping? I've seen it associated with your name. And uh let's give the listeners what the scoop is on it. Yeah, so 
So my, my second daughter was an equestrian and I had a lot of money flowing out, uh, on, on horses. And <laughs> Not the way you want it to be flowing, but with horses, that's what happens, right? Yeah, it's always I, a lot, I, I spent, I spent more on horseshoes than I did on my own shoes. Uh, so <laughs> it was crazy. So I got into horse flipping as opposed to house flipping, uh, with a partner. Uh, we bring in horses, uh, generally from Europe. Uh, and he trains them and then we resell them, uh, most of the time at a profit. Uh, we've done, uh, I think, uh, we are on horse number 16 or 17 at this point. Oh, wow. uh, and, and we've, we've done pretty well. We've, we've beat the market, uh, on average, uh, every year. So the concept of horse flipping is you're bringing in a horse that has not been well taken care of and you're sort of like rejuvenating them and turning, turning them into something that people want to have in their stables or, 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 or what's the uh, bigger concept there? It's not horse renovations. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, we bring in horses, uh, we get videos, we have them vetted. They're, they're usually, you know, six to eight years old. Uh, and then he's a well-known trainer, uh, and judge in the equestrian community. Okay. And so getting his name attached to it, helps the price right off. Uh, we keep the horse anywhere from usually a month to, to six months, uh, and then resell it. Wow. So your background and see as, as, as a CFO is perfect for this because you have the emotional side, right? You're thinking about your daughter, you know, your, your connection to the sport, but you're also bringing a certain financial acumen. Uh, is this, is this sort of a theme throughout your career? Yeah. So yeah, I'm the, I'm, I'm the financier on this one. My, when we started, it was actually my daughter's idea and we got the first horse and she said, now, when do I get to ride this horse? I said, never. And she's like, what do you mean never? And I said, this is an investment. This is not your horse. Uh, and so she felt like I tricked her. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so it's, it's all about, uh, finding the right investment, uh, uh, putting the money in, uh, treating it correctly and then selling it for more. Yeah. And also bringing into the equation, you, you found a great partner. It sounds like with this horse trainer, uh, when you're looking for a great horse trainer or looking for a great team member in general, maybe for your, you know, Friday logistics or one of your other ventures, uh, what, what's your advice for, for leaders who, who are looking for a great partner collaborator team member? Yeah, no, I, I think it's always important to surround yourself with uh, great people that uh, can be subject matter experts, that they're uh, better at things that maybe are your weakness, uh, that a lot of times are smarter than you are. Uh, I, I'm not afraid to bring in someone that I think smarter because I think we'll get to better answers and solutions mm -hmm. uh, by surrounding myself with great people. Yeah, it's such a slippery slope because, you know, I find this with CFOs, you want to understand the numbers. And a lot of CFOs, I'm not going to say they go, well, they go really deep, right? Because they want to understand the cost at a very granular level. But where do you draw the line as CFO of understanding the numbers versus sort of trusting your people to report back information across, you know, you know, bringing it back to your day job, <laughs> you know, you, you've really got to understand everything along the supply chain. So 
So what are you doing? Because I think the tendency is if you go too low, too detailed, you can't be strategic, right? You're kind of, you're, you're spending too much time in the details and the weeds and not at the higher level. And I think a lot of leaders struggle with this. So, so what's your advice there? Yeah, there's definitely a, a tipping point on that, Ben. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think that uh, you really have to be careful that you don't get too far in the weeds. Uh, you have to have these good people surrounding you and you have to trust them and hold them accountable. Uh, for 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 the basics, the basic blocking and tackling of finance and accounting, because really the CFO role has evolved over time, and it, and it is much more strategic. It's a partner to the CEO. Uh, I really enjoy the time that I spend on looking at the CEO's vision, helping develop the vision, and then figuring out the pathway to achieve it. Uh, and mm-hmm. and that's where I think I bring value. Uh, to to the executive office more than just reporting numbers that have happened. Yeah, yeah, and giving the crystal ball to the future, right? I mean, here we are in a strangely inflationary environment, uh, which hasn't happened for a while, uh, and it's you know it's presenting some new challenges that a lot of leaders have not had to face in their career, or maybe they faced it when they were more junior in the organization, but not as just as a strategic leader, uh, what's, you know, advice for leaders who are in a position where, you know, that, you know, they find themselves in this inflationary environment um, and maybe they're not quite sure of uh, how they should be thinking about things. Yeah. I think it's, uh, you know, a lot of communications have to go on, uh, especially with your customers uh, as you enter into uh, high inflation possibilities, for us, the mo- biggest concern is around labor because the major our biggest cost is yep. labor. Ben, yep. uh, that's what keeps us awake. Is how how do we make sure we retain people, and how do we make sure that we're keeping up with the market, yep. and then how do we pay for it? Uh, and some of that's shared with the customer, and some of that uh, has to be done internally through efficiencies. Yeah, efficiencies, 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 and trying to make up for that. But certainly, it can't all be absorbed usually from from a labor standpoint. Because, like you say, you, you got to keep them keep it competitive. You know, we do a lot of work around the the uh, cost of turnover, and we were doing this before the pandemic, and it was it was so weird. You know, we were working with companies around the catastrophic cost of turnover, and then it just kind of went away initially during the early stages of pandemic because. People don't want to talk about it because they weren't really losing people because you were kind of holding on to their jobs for dear life. And literally, it it seems like it changed overnight, uh, where people, you know, people became a big issue and uh, again and, and retaining them. And our numbers just you know show that it's easy six figures uh, in, in turnover costs per employee per year. You know when you're losing them. Uh, is this a cost that you believe? I mean, it sounds like you do believe companies should be tracking. Uh, what What do you say to companies out there who aren't tracking it today? What Where should they start? Well, initially, what I would say, Ben, is if you're not tracking it, you're letting money flow out the window. Uh, mm. It's it's so critical uh, to understand <laughs> retention. And, and the cost of, uh, of not retaining employees, uh, when I first got to what was Kane Logistics, now ID Logistics US, uh, after the acquisition this year, 
we we were losing people. We uh, there was a a, a wage uh, perspective that wasn't market driven. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so I worked with our chief people officer and our chief operating officer, and uh, we went went to work, and, and we determined. Uh, much like you do, uh, the ex- the high expense of turnover, and so we figured out if if we find the right wage uh, to retain people, and we also put in things like wage progression so that people knew they were going to get steady increases over time. Uh, we put in more leadership training uh, to make sure leaders understood what their role was. And, and we determined that we would more than pay for through uh, productivity enhancements, because every time you lose a person, you have to retrain them. There's a ramp up. And then if you're losing multiple people, high percentages of people, that is just an exorbitant cost. Yeah. And uh, so we determined that we would we would more than save what it costs to put in higher wages and wage progression. And we've increased our retention by almost uh, 65 to 70 percent over the last year and a half. Wow. Congratulations. During the Great Resignation, you went the reverse. You retained more. That's exactly Um, right. Wow. So was it a call to act? Like, was it a wake-up call kind of early in the pandemic when things started happening? And that's when you sort of corrected course and accelerated your retention? Or is it something something before that, that that occurred? No, I think it, it really occurred during the pandemic. That's when mm-hmm. we really started focusing. We knew labor was a significant portion yep. of our costs and that we had to do something about it. And we knew that turnover was you know, bleeding us uh, of, of real dollars. And so if we didn't do something, uh, we weren't going to be able to hit the targets that were set uh, for the leadership team. Yeah, I mean, great. I, I love how you're tying it back to the bottom line and the overall goals, because I think if you can't make that connection, it's hard to get people's attention on it. And it's so easy for, I mean, finance, you're kind of in a a, a part of the process where you're looking at the numbers and you're trying to bring people in, but a lot of companies, I mean, just to be direct about it, HR people don't speak the same language as finance people and finance people don't speak the same language as HR or, you know, uh, marketing it's like everyone is speaking a different language, but I think where you're getting at is that, hey, we all speak the language of the bottom line. And if we can make that happen, man, I just, it sounds like you guys are really make some amazing progress there. Yeah, it, it was really good. And, you know, maybe there's a little bit of training on all, all three organizations or functional part where uh, we had to learn a little <laughs> bit more about people yeah. or, or profitability Great. or but uh, I also think that uh, my time at GXO, when I wasn't in a finance role, I was really running a whole organization uh, that gave me the perspective uh, that makes me a better CFO. I, I was, you know, I, I had the whole functionality of 150 warehouses, the operations, the business development, everything. And so now as a CFO, I have a broader base to come from on why things are important. Yeah, I like that. I think that when you take a broader role for a while, it, it exposes you to so many different things and just uh, affects your thinking. And some people, 
you know, sometimes they just feel like, hey, I am a finance person or I am an HR person and they just want to stick to that role throughout their career. But I mean, there it's, it, it can, and I think we, we can really place so much value on honing your expertise that we forget sometimes the benefit as a leader of taking on different roles. And, and I'm thinking of, of you as a leader having a team and trying to get them involved in different kinds of roles so they can understand a broader perspective. And bring that back. Yeah, I think I think that's really important, Ben. I all my career, I've always believed uh, that finance is a professional services group uh, supporting the organization, and I think it's so important that whether you're a financial analyst, uh, an accountant, uh, you know, an AP clerk, that that you know what the business is. So I always do. I'll call them field trips. Uh, with my teams, uh, whether that was visiting a major container vessel and going up on the bridge and seeing what it was like, or or going to the port and seeing containers unloaded, or visiting a warehouse to understand why safety is important and uh, how how the inbounds and the outbounds flow. I, Knowing the business as a finance and accounting person is very important so that you're not in the back room just punching numbers. Uh, yeah. you, you, you have to be a partner mm. and you have to help the organization become better. I like that. And I like the idea of field trips because we all understand what that is. That's getting in the field, y'all. So when you look at your team, are they in the office all the time or are they, are you, and, if, and if so, you got to get about also field trips. And I think about people leading remote teams around the globe. If you're not in the same office, you may have to help them proactively schedule or make that part of their role to get out. I, uh, my first job out of college was as an industrial engineer and my boss was like twisting my arm to get out from behind the Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> and, uh, we were, we were doing a lot of work in Latin America. Finally, he actually sent me to Mexico uh, to get on the sewing line for Russell Corporation to experience life as a sewing operator so I could appreciate it more and not just do my work from behind an Excel spreadsheet. And I was pretty miserable at the time. But looking back, that that was the field trip that pays uh, has paid major dividends for me and made me a better leader for the company. Now, I want to ask you, Time that had something also happened to me one, uh, one time, and I and get reflection on this. So I was sitting in a meeting, and I, and I was working for a large sporting goods company, not not Russell. And our CFO comes in. We're having this cross-functional project meeting, and he comes in, and we're all scared immediately because when this person walked in the room, we were just naturally scared of this a specific leader. And he just starts saying, "Why are we here? Why are we here?" He was pointing at everyone in the room saying, why are we here? And we're like, oh my, and then he gets to me and I'm like, to make money? And, and he said, no, we're here to maximize shareholder value. And then he literally walked out and we're sitting there like, what just happened? Now, looking back on this years ago, I'm really not exactly sure what happened, but it startled me. It made a big impression on me. And I often ask this question, as the CFO, why do you think companies you know even exist you, you know when you're talking to your team do you go with sort of that quintessential financial thing they teach you in business school we're here to maximize shareholder value or is there is there is, is there a different way to talk about it i mean i think uh, there there are a lot of angles 
to that, Ben. I mean, obviously, companies are in business to uh, increase shareholder value. Companies are in business to make profits, uh, which in turn increases shareholder value. Uh, but I, I think there's always a, a people side to it uh, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and and a community side to it, whether mm-hmm. that be a, a state or a country or a globe. Uh, and, and all of those mm-hmm. need to be considered uh, in, in thinking about why do companies exist? Yeah, I, I like that. And you're seeing this language starting to merge with, you know, with some organizations around triple net bottom line where they're trying to look at that angle and, and actually go to the nth degree to quantify the thing, which is no small task uh, uh, to do that. So, uh, yeah, I think that's looking at it from a different perspective. Now, I kind of felt like, Jim, we skirted over the first part of your career because we got so into all these other topics. And I want to make sure that we create a little space here, here for that. So looking back over your career, uh, what's the advice that you would give your younger self back in the day? That's a great question. I think uh, a couple of things. One, not everything is black and white. Uh, I, I I grew up feeling like uh, you know it was either yes or no, true or false, uh, black or white, uh, and, and and there are a lot of gray areas in business, and 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 a little bit of flexibility is is mm. important. And and with that flexibility, that it's okay to change direction with new insight or information. I mm. think there were times early in my career when I made a decision, and you know, no matter what, I was going to stick with that decision, and even if I got new information. Well, that information must be wrong, uh, but it's it's okay to change your mind if you learn something new or something that trumps what you knew before. Mm. And when's the time in your career where that, where that surged you well? Well, I, I learned it from mistakes. I mean, I, mm. I would say there were, there were positions or jobs that I took that before I started, I knew it was probably the wrong decision, but I had already made the decision. So I couldn't turn back on it. And, uh, and, and then I learned throughout my career that, you know, it's okay to have open discussions and, and make changes to the direction you're going. Mm. Now I'll say with that, the mistakes that I made in my career on, on, on job decisions all turned out as as positive learning experiences. Uh, so I, I can't be totally down on them. Uh, yeah. because yeah, you take- that's your learning lab right there. Yeah, right. I mean, it, it was absolutely awesome. learning. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad though, that you mentioned about the decision-making and I, I can't remember the bias, the, the, the human bias that what the actual name of this is, but it, there, I've read a lot of research on this where, uh, once we invest time and money in something, it's human nature to keep doing it. It's why doubling down in casinos is so popular. Or even if people are making the same mistake over and over again, it's like we've we've come too far. We're still trying to make it right. And I think uh, to do a little Kenny Rogers, you got to know when to fold them, know when to walk away on a decision is probably a good thing to keep in your back pocket. 
along the way. That's absolutely true. I mean, uh, and I, I know the law you're talking about, the law of investment that uh, that people don't want to they don't want to give up on the sunk cost. I mean, it's sunk. I mean, yeah, it, sunk cost. It, it's yeah. in the past, so so you can move on in a different direction. Uh, the sunk costs are still going to be sunk, and, and you don't have to keep investing in them. Great, great, great. I'm glad you mentioned that. A good economic term. For everybody to remember a sunk cost is sunk. And sometimes you gotta sometimes you gotta move on, even when you know it's uh, painful to do that. What what's the one trait you wish you could instill in every employee and why do you think it's so important? I think it's uh would be great if every employee would bring ideas and solutions rather than just problems. Mm-hmm. It's it's so easy for everybody to stand around the water cooler. Uh, in the days of standing around water coolers uh, and not not being as as remote uh, as some of us are these days, but uh, uh, and and talk about the problems, uh, you know, and and complain. Uh, but what really adds the value is bring the ideas and the and, and solutions. Might not be the right solution, but but at least have thought through it. Uh, a lot of times, uh, employees are on the front lines. They have different or more clear insights uh, and grassroots ideas usually get better buy-in than mm. uh, something that's just top down. Yeah. Great advice. There's like a call to action for employees, but also for their leaders. Because like you say, yeah, I agree. If it's someone else's idea, even if you've been thinking about this as a leader, if someone from your team's bringing it, they're much more likely to get on board with participating and making it better. If it's their idea, they're naturally taking more ownership. And it is so easy for employees. And, and it's just human nature too, to point the problem. But as my dad said, when you're pointing the finger at the problem, there's three pointing back at you. <laughs> That's right. Now, by the way, I was, I, I was saying that to my daughter and now she starts pointing at things with her hand fully open. So she has no fingers pointing back. So don't you dare use that out there, listeners. Yeah, kid, kids are kids are smart, aren't they? They 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 pick up on that so fast. But uh, uh, but yeah, I, I I totally agree. And, and it's the best way to train up new leaders is that they come up with an idea, and then you say that's a great idea. I want you to lead this project, and then they learn how to lead a project, and and, and then soon they're leading multiple projects, and that that that's really how you get people excited. Uh, you get them involved and, and you, and again, you retain them because they're getting to do stuff that's, that's cool and fun and different. Yep. I really like that strategy. Just so you train them and retain them with a single stone, get them involved in the project. Uh, I, I really like that approach. Want to boost your productivity and decision-making? Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource, whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to benfanning.com slash insight. Let's dive into a time that you had an unexpected twist or failure in your career. This is one of my favorite questions to ask on the show. And then how did this lead to your growth on down the road? Yeah, so after I uh, finished my stints in in startup technology companies uh, and went through uh, a, a 
total seed company where a customer uh, decided to go with a competing project and we lost 80% of our business. Uh, and then into a, an internet company, just uh, kind of in time for the bubble to burst in the late 90s, uh, I, I went back to telecom uh, and was working as the global uh, strategic planning, financial planning, and capital planning lead uh, with a CFO that I'd worked with at AT&T. And when I came in, they had given me the analysis that had been put together about how great margins were and how they were increasing and all these new products. And uh, my first responsibility was to go around the world to the, to the country heads and the product leads and talk to them about this. And as I talked to more and more people, I realized that these new products were not being accepted yet. Uh, mm. in, in, in the industry, that it was it was actually early, uh, and so there was not margin uh, margins were not increasing. Uh, they were quickly deteriorating, especially as we went into deregulation and and higher competition and things like that. And so I went from thinking I was coming into a high growth, highly profitable to holy cow, we've got to figure out how to take hundreds of millions of dollars out of our cost. And so I worked with the CFO, the CEO, the chief marketing officer, and, and, and we developed a plan. And one of those plans, I told him, you know, we need to eliminate my position. Uh, we, <laughs> I was in the United States. Uh, it, was a, it was a company that was headquartered in the U.K., and they had a foundation of employees in the UK. So there's no reason for me to be an island with a small group in the US. I mean, you can save you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars by repurposing this position and this responsibility back to the UK. Mm. And so I, I took my own position away. Wow. That's bold. And that is definitely a Kenny Rogers style move that we talked about earlier with, I wouldn't say that's necessarily suck cost, but cost it knowing that you, they've made that investment and you've made that investment of time, but just knowing when it's time, like, Hey, let's wind this down and do something different. Well, I mean, it was my responsibility to think for the business, not think for myself. And, uh, and so I had to be, Fact-based, I had to be thorough, and so I was. And it, you know, it it made sense, and it worked out. And that's when I changed from technology and telecom over to logistics, and you know, I've been in logistics ever since. So. Wow! So one door closed, another one opened, and here we are today, interviewing you on Lead the Team. So. Good move back in the day, even though it may not have felt like it at the time. I'm assuming that caused some stress, that decision. It, it, it did cause some stress. Uh, it was the first time in my life uh, when I, I sat down with my wife and we said, okay, usually we move for companies. Let's decide where we want to live uh, for the time being and we'll figure it out from there. So we pulled out 
a map of the, and decided we wanted to be in the eastern United States. And we looked at multiple cities and we ended up choosing Atlanta. And that's where I found a position a few months later at, at Americold uh, Logistics. And uh, it's been it's been exciting ever since. Wow. Wow. What a great story. Thanks for sharing that with us, John. Um, I also want to want to touch on something else that came up, you know, looking at your LinkedIn and, and, and some of our emails back and forth. Is the is the idea of the side hustle, and what you've like? What's the uh, what are some of the ahas that you've had in being an executive and having a side hustle? And what's your advice for people who don't have one, and maybe why they should they should consider it? Yeah, I think side hustles are great, and and it doesn't have to be a business side hustle. It can be uh, working with nonprofits or service organizations. It can be uh, do, doing something different uh, as far as pulling together executives uh, or up and coming uh, executives uh, to have gatherings and, and smart conversations. But I think for me, one, it keeps me fresh. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it gives me something different, a different perspective. Uh, having conversations with people from uh, different companies and, and different positions make sure that I don't get myopic in, in my perspective as a leader. Uh, there was uh, prior to the pandemic, I participated in a group called Corporate Thought. It was a little bit tongue in cheek uh, because we did not believe in corporate speak uh, and things like that. It was you know kind of a joke calling it Corporate Thought, but we were doing uh, dinners across the country, gatherings of 12 to 14 people to hmm. talk about interesting topics. And we we did them in interesting places. We did one in a in a, a vault in New York City. We did one in a vineyard in Virginia. We actually did one at the International Civil Rights Museum here in Greensboro. And we did another one at a uh, at a recording studio uh, outside of Norfolk, Virginia. And, and those were amazing meet, hmm. meetings of bringing business leaders that had very different businesses. And, and, and so it keeps you fresh and it, it gives you perspective and, and it keeps you energized. I love uh, uh, getting the energy out of other people uh, because sometimes you you get a little stuck in a rut as you, you're just doing the same business year after year after year. And so to to keep things uh, fun and exciting, you, you need those side hustles. And I'm sure I'm glad that we're talking about this because all the different things that you said are the reasons I think people don't start them. They start them because they think, hey, we're going to make all this money or you know, they're thinking about like their exit strategy or their plan B. Now, are, are all those legitimate for side hustles? I believe yes. But if you, I think if that's the mindset, you're missing the present opportunity. And I think what you said, like energized, um, getting sparked in a different way, you know, really encouraging, you know, a mindset shift. And I worked for fortune 50 companies, you know, for years as an employee. And I started my own coaching practice and started writing and blogging for Inc and some other you know publications. And I'll tell you, it made me su- such a better employee and a better leader. Um, for, for many reasons that, that you mentioned, like I'm getting exposed to ideas. A lot of times people 
in companies, they get exposed to the same people every day, you know, the, the same team people. And yes, that's good for maybe trust building and working towards a common goal, but it's not always great for innovation. You can only get so many ideas from reading the Wall Street Journal or your industry publications, right? You, right. you know, it's just it's like drinking your own Kool-Aid over and over and over. And a way to foster this, I think, could be uh, pretty special. What, what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. Uh, one of my favorites, I started up a young executives group when I was in Norfolk, Virginia. And we started with four of us. Uh, and, and the goal was every meeting we would double. So we went from four and then we all each invited one. We went to eight and then we all invited one. We went to 16. Uh, that It got harder to double and double. We got to 24 at the next meeting. Then we got to 32. And, and then I ended up moving. Uh, but it was so cool to uh, meet up with these people from so many different areas, so many different businesses. Uh, and, and I was the oldest guy in the room. Uh, and, and I got so much energy from these 30-somethings and hearing their ideas and what they were doing and what their perspective was. And it helped me understand my employees better and, mm-hmm. and how they thought without, without putting pressure on my employees by asking them. Uh, so it, it, it was really exciting. It was, it was a great group and uh, was, was a key to some of my insights. Yeah, everyone listening, I mean, this is something that doesn't come up a lot uh, on the show, but I think it's a necessary strategy. Again, we bring it back to the whole remote work thing. I mean, it's so easy for your teams that are maybe working remotely to be sitting in front of a computer all day doing work and not getting exposed to other things. And so by encouraging this is for your team, it's going to feel weird probably if you haven't done it. They're going to say, what? You're encouraging me to like make all this money and start my own thing. I'm already overworked here as it is. You know, it could go south in a hurry. But I think to explain it as, you know, how Jim is talking about as, hey, how are you renewing yourself outside? And we're not talking about a vacation. Yes, that's important. But ways to sort of engage yourself and other activities so they can bring back, uh, as you use the word fresh, that freshness to the team, I think, can go a long way. And it also gives people an entrepreneurial spirit, no matter what the side hustle is. And, and, and entrepreneurship, even in big companies, is so yeah. critical to keep moving forward. <clears throat> yeah, it it is. And n- when I started my own business, I mean, I would just had, you know, it was, it was small, but I started thinking about the bottom line entirely differently. And we want our employees to think about the bottom line. Maybe they've been to finance school. Maybe they've got their MBA, but have they run a company? If they if they're able to just run something small, and they have their own budget, it just shifts their mind mindset. Powerful Absolutely. Powerful. So, Jim, this has been a really good interview. We've only touched on a handful of the questions that I had for you today. <laughs> let's let's kind of bring this uh, sort of bring it to a close. Uh, from your perspective, Jim, um, what what's a parting thought or idea that you'd like to share with the listeners? Well, Ben, I really appreciate the time. I, I, I it's been a great conversation. Uh, I, I I love the podcast. I look forward to Thanks. continuing to listen. You know, I think 
it's important that uh, people uh, take action in what they do. Uh, I've got a, a moniker that I have used throughout my career with my groups. Uh, it's called Achieve. Uh, I tell them, if you want to be an achiever, do these things. If you want to have achievements, do these things. It's it's action. It's communication. No matter what, the good, the bad, the ugly, communicate. Mm-hmm. Make sure things and, and honesty. That's you know making sure that whether it's good or bad news, that that, that you're honest in in those communications. It's intensity. When you're when you're doing something, give the hundred and ten percent. It doesn't help anybody yourself or the company. If if you give less than uh, you know 110 percent, and it makes it more fun, uh, and so I learned that through team sports how important intensity is. We talked about entrepreneurship. I think that's uh, a key uh, to everything because you want to be creative. It keeps keeps you excited about the job. Uh, values, uh, mm. and I think of this of uh, be yourself. Uh, you have your own set of values. Be yourself. There's been twice in my career. When I tried to be somebody different, you know, the the mean yeller uh, and really get on people. And it's not who, who I am. I, I believe in setting goals out, communicating them, being direct uh, and holding people accountable. And, and I don't think I have to yell and scream about it. Uh, and, and, but I did that twice and both were failures. And I ended up apologizing both times because it wasn't my authentic self. And and then the last thing and achieve, uh, the last E is remembering that employees are the most important resource, uh, that they're who get things done, that they are why the business is there to service the customer, but keep your employees happy and your customers will be happy. And so that's kind of my parting Mm. thought then. I can't let you get away without me asking a few questions because I really like, <laughs> I really like, so we're going to extend this a little bit longer, uh, value. So I, I like what you said about that. I think it's interesting that you talked about two times in your career where you're like, Hey, I tried something different and it just wasn't me. It didn't work out well. Um, it sounds like you're very self-reflective in this way. Like you're thinking about, you know, your past, do you, do you have a certain, reflection process journaling you work with a coach or, or or a therapist or what do you you know what's your you just have friends what what what's your sort of process for going back and reflecting a, a, over things it, it's multi-pronged ben I, it's some self-reflection uh it's uh, af- after meetings i try to think about how i feel they went uh what what went well what didn't mm-hmm. uh, personally mm-hmm. uh, i'll uh, I'll talk to some of the people in the meeting. Uh, say, I say, I approach that really differently. Well, you know, what are your thoughts? Uh, uh, and then it's having advisors and mentors. Uh, my wife is a key advisor. Sometimes I'll come home or working remotely now, I'll come out of my office and I'll say, this just happened. And, and she'll say, hmm. And how do you feel about that? <laughs> and then we'll have a discussion about it. Uh, I have, I have, and I have have coaches uh, that uh, have, mm-hmm. have supported me. I think that's really important. I think that's great to find someone that can assist in in being an uh, uh, an unbiased party 
uh, with a different perspective. Fantastic. Y'all, thanks for mentioning all those resources too for people to consider because we we don't see ourselves the way we really are and how we're definitely not how we're being perceived through others' eyes. And so having a process, I think is important for all leaders. And I'll and you you pretty much covered them all, right? You were like, yeah, I write down, I think about what what went well. I ask for feedback from others in the meetings. You talked about those close closest to you, you know, getting some getting some feedback from your spouse, having mentors, sponsors, uh, or sorry, coaches. I'm an executive coach, and I've had executive coaches for years. A lot of times, people are surprised. Well, Ben, you're a coach. Why in the world do you have a coach? I'm like, yo, I've it's one of the most it's one of the best investments I make each and every month. And in fact, I have more than one coach at. at you know, at the same time, because that process really works for me. Um, well, a, a dentist has a dentist, right? I mean, it's, it's, no, <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's no different. <laughs> yeah, everyone needs something like that, right? Especially if you believe in it. Um, you also mentioned intensity. And to me, that was a little unexpected, but I'm really glad that is part of the Achieve moniker because I think it gets overlooked because, you know, Susie can work four hours and John can work eight hours and yet Susie can get more done. Right. And it's all this intensity factor is a big deal. What was the team sport environment that you really sort of honed your intensity and um, how have you been able to apply it? You know, I, I grew up playing lots of sports, but basketball was was the main mm-hmm. sport. And you know, I learned early on uh, that uh, you when you're on the floor, you give it all. Uh, and you know if if you come off the floor to sit on the bench and you're not tired, then you're not doing your role. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's that's where I, I learned it from a sporting perspective. And and I think it's so important. I, I love the example you just gave because early in my career, uh, it drove me nuts because I would come in and, and I would get a lot done. And there there was another guy that was at a similar level, and he'd work for twelve hours a day, and the and our supervisor would just praise and praise this employee. And, and I'd watch him work. He didn't do anything the first four hours of the day. He he sat around and didn't really do anything. Oh, and then yeah. he'd start working about midday. And I'm like, I'd rather people get stuff done than think about how many hours they're working. And that, so that's how I, I run my groups. And that's a big shift for a lot of people. I, I, I tell you, uh, Cal, uh, Cal Newport, who's a professor at Stanford, wrote, wrote this book deep work. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but he has this formula that I refer back to it all the time, talking to people I work with, my my family, and it's work accomplished is the function of time plus intensity. Hmm. I like that. I love that. Time plus intensity equals work accomplished. It's the same way why my roommate in college would cram the night before the test, not studying and do as well as I did or better. Now I don't know if he rem- I don't know if he remembered it as long, but he did do great on the test. And this cramming idea, you know, really being able to use that, but it, but implying applying intensity 
as a leader, doing that with your meetings, doing that with your own work, and then teaching your team about it, I think it's a great gift. So um, I'm like, yeah, I think I think the only thing to be careful of is that you're not creating intensity through procrastination. Uh, and, and, and the, and the cramming idea is uh, a little bit reminiscent of procrastination. And I think that procrastination can be a, a, a problem. Uh, one great yes. book that I, I read in the last uh, year or so was the art of gathering by Priya Parker. Okay. Uh, and, and, and you think of it, uh, from an art of gathering, like for, dinners and things like that, but she takes it way further. Uh, and, and, and why it's important to have an agenda and and a focused agenda and, and make sure that meetings are only as long as they should be. And you should only have a meeting if you should have a meeting, not for a meeting's sake. And and, and I I love the book and, and, (laughs) and it gave me new insights. Well, I'll make sure to put a link to that in the notes for everybody. I'm not familiar with that. And I love getting new uh, book recommendations. And it makes me think of Parkinson's Law, which was Cyril Northcutt Parkinson. He wrote in The Economist back in the 70s that work expands to fill the time allocated. So if you reduce the time allocated, well, you can right-size it. And I think you made a good point there too, Jim, on avoiding procrastination. It can work, but it'll catch you because eventually. Like if you you just run out of time, maybe something doesn't go as planned, you don't have any cushion and you're out of time and you miss the deadline. Yeah. And um, that's, right. that, that's not a lot of fun. And this is coming from a CFO in the supply chain industry. So he knows a thing or two about timelines. All right. Now for real, John, I'm really closing this down, <laughs> but great job. Yeah. Check out the Achieve moniker. Uh, I'll make sure we put that, you know, in, in the show notes too, so people can kind of go in and, and do that. Cause I think a lot of leaders too, when you, when you lead with a, something personal like that with them, it's one thing for them to read something from a book or something along those lines, but to have you present it in a more personal way like that, I think it makes it really, really uh, powerful to the team. Well, thanks, Ben. I've, I've really enjoyed our conversation. All right, Jim, take care. All right. You too, Ben. Thanks. If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.